Why don't you guys have a seat? We're going to continue in that posture. And uh, I, I was away last week. I was uh, preaching at a, uh, an alliance church in, in the city here. And it's always good to experience, you know, how other people do church. And one of the things that they did that I really appreciate was uh, an extended time of, of intercessory prayer. And so we're going to enter into a time of prayer. We're going to keep that posture declaring that the name of Jesus is powerful and mighty to save. Amen. Why don't you close your eyes? Let's unite our hearts in prayer. Father, we come before you this, today, and I pray that as, as um, we gather, as we come here individually, Lord, that you would, you would knit our hearts together as a body, as a people, as a family, and that united we would stand and we would experience you in a deep and profound way this morning. God, we come with expectation that you will meet us here. So God, would you enter in? Holy Spirit, we invite you to invade our hearts. God, speak to us this morning. Speak to us through the power of your Holy Spirit, the power of the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, the name above all names, the name by which no other name we are saved. And as we come into your presence, God, I pray that you would cast our hearts and our minds out into the world to those who are hurting, to those who are in need, who those, to those who do not yet know you. God, I think about what's been happening here in, in this side of the world. Fires in California that have claimed uh, dozens of lives, thousands more displaced. Father, I think about right here at home, young men who, are being abused by their classmates. And that abuse has been made a sport, Father. We live in a broken, broken world. But Father, we declare today that you are in our midst. We declare today that there is good news that your son, Jesus Christ, has come to reconcile all things, to redeem all things. And we are part of that. And you call each and every one of us to that to be agents of reconciliation, to be declarers of the good news, your gospel. So prepare us, Father, we implore you. Visit us today. Holy Spirit, come, Lord Jesus. It's his name we pray. Amen. So I am filling in for Pastor Lucas this morning. We're just going to take a, a brief detour away from the follow series, but uh, I believe that God has a word for us to that end today, and so I'm going to preach my little heart out. Is that okay with you? All right. So about a month back, um, Joyce came and tapped me on the shoulder and said, I want to have a conversation with you. If you don't know Joyce, Joyce is actually, you know what, she's sitting right there in this beautiful orange and um, Joyce is famous for being um, one of the longest-running members of the Bayview Glen Choir, back before we were even Bayview Glen Church in our Avenue Road days. Um, I don't know the exact time. Were you around when Tozer was around? Were you? Not quite? Okay. That was a long time ago. But Joyce is a lovely, lovely woman, dear friend of mine. And she said, I want to talk to you, Kevin. And as a pastor, when someone approaches you at church and says, I want to talk to you, you're, you time... You, Pastors tend to get their backs up a little bit, you know, because it's not always good 
when someone wants to talk to you. But that's not the case with Joyce, right? Because Joyce wears a smile like a smartphone. It's always on. And I love Joyce to death. And so she says to me, she says, Kevin, I'm going on a trip to the UAE. And I was like, what a coincidence. I used to live in the UAE. And she says, yes, that's why I want to talk to you, because you used to live there, and I want to talk to you about it. And so uh, we made a date and uh, went over to her house a couple weeks later, and um, she just wanted to know the lay of the land, you know, what's it, what's it like over there, what are the, some of the things that she needs to be aware of. It is a Muslim country, and so um, those things. And also, you know, what are, what are some of the things that she could do while she was there? What, what, what shouldn't she miss doing? And so I told her about the Burj Khalifa, which is the tallest building in the world, and uh, the Dubai Mall, which... Um, um, takes up a lot of space and is, the, I think, the second largest mall um, in the world. Uh, I told her to visit Abu Dhabi, Sheikh Zayed, the Grand Mosque there, just this beautiful place of worship. Um, just millions and millions of dollars spent on, uh, on, on beautifying this, uh, this, this mosque. Uh, told her about the, the Dubai Museum, which is right in the, in the heart of Dubai. It's an old fort that's been there for, for centuries, uh, and they've converted it into a museum. And when you start at the Dubai Museum and you take a walk um, a little further on, you come into the old souk area. Souk is another way, uh, word for market. Um, so it's the Arabic word for market. And so you go to this old souk, this marketplace, and people are selling their wares. And if you walk through there, you find yourself by the Dubai Creek, by the waterway. And on there, you can take a water taxi across the creek to another area of Dubai um, called Dira, where there are two more souks. One is a gold souk and the other is a spice souk. And so as I was describing this to Joyce, um, it occurred to me that we were actually in need of some spices that you can only get in that part of the world. You see, when, um, when my, my wife is a brilliant cook, loves to cook, loves to um, um, just create concoctions. Uh, I use that word concoction, you know, I love everything that she cooks. Um, but she learned from a, a, a Syrian lady um, how to make this dish, which was a family secret, be, shortly before she left. And, they, and she needed a specific Arabic spice called five spice. And so it was, it's very hard to get a hold of. But since Joyce was going, I thought very selfishly for myself, this is our opportunity to get more of this spice, right? And so I, I say to Joyce, Joyce, can you please get me some of these spices? Of course, Joyce you know, agreed whole, um, uh, to do that for us. And so a couple weeks go by, and she calls me almost as soon as she gets back. I don't even think you were, you'd um, gotten over your jet lag yet, and you called me and said, come over, I have your spices. And so uh, I hurried over to her house, uh, and we sat together, and uh, she took out her iPad, and she's showing me pictures of her trip, which is great, pictures of, you know, Joyce, pictures of um, Patricia, who she went with, pictures of camels, more pictures of camels and more camels. It was great. But as she was showing me these pictures on her iPad, um, the smell of the spices were actually in the air, and I, and I could smell them. And as I was smelling those spices, my eyes began to water, not because of the spice itself, but because of the memories that began to flood back as I smelled those spices, memories of what it was like to live overseas, to be, be in our desert home. It transported me right back there. And I was reminded about our experience in the UAE, the two years that we spent there as a family. Because we went to the UAE. We left everything we knew and loved here in Canada to go there because my wife and I, we were convicted of this fact that our lives do not belong to us. They belong to God who redeemed us. And our lives are for him to do with what he will. And so 
said goodbye to a job that I loved here at Bayview Glen, said uh, goodbye to our family and our friends, said goodbye to the home that we thought we would grow old in, said goodbye to familiarity and goodbye to security, and to go where God would lead us. And he led us there to be a presence of Christ there, that the knowledge of God would be made known through us where he is least known. All of these things came flooding back to me just at the smell of these spices in the air. And I was overcome with emotion because I, I really missed it. I didn't show it, to, I didn't show it to, to Joyce, though. She didn't see it because, you know. But there it was. I just missed that life that we had. And so that brought me to this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. Um, if you have a, a Bible, you can open it up. If, you're not, if not, you can take it from the seat back in front of you. 2 Corinthians is in the New Testament. It's uh, closer to the end. And looking at verse 2, verses 14 to 17. If you have a, a device you want to look onto, you can go ahead and do that. But this is what it says. These are the words of the Apostle Paul. He says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Now, the background here is that Paul is writing a letter to the church of Corinth. This is a, a church that he had a hand in building. And he's writing to confirm uh, and give a defense even for his apostolic ministry there. He is God's apostle. But what happened to the church at the time was there were these other apostles that had come in and were starting to steer this church in their direction and away from Paul. And they were making arguments against him. And so Paul is here mounting a defense of his apostolic ministry to the church in Corinth. If you look at um, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 to 6, this is the ministry that, that Paul reminds the Corinthians that he is about. He says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. You see, Paul is a minister of this new covenant of Jesus Christ. He is a, a declarer of the gospel, a declarer of the good news of Jesus, if you will. And so this, Paul is writing about himself, but in this we see a reflection of who we ought to be as well as ministers of this new covenant, as declarers of God's gospel message of Jesus. And so these verses, as you um, may notice, are bookended by these very important words of Paul. He says, in Christ the words in Christ. And if you've read the, the epistles, um, Paul's epistles, 13 letters that he wrote to the churches, um, you will see this term over and over again. 84 times he uses this term, in Christ. Um, 47 times he uses a very similar term, in the Lord. 131 times across 13 letters. 
he says these words. It roughly comes out to uh, once every chapter where he says the actual words, in Christ. And so you might say that Paul is obsessed, at least preoccupied, with this notion of being in Christ. And I would say he is rightly preoccupied. Listen to the words of, of, uh, of Paul, um, words that might be familiar, familiar to you through his writings. He says, it is the free gift of God. This free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. He says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Should I go on? I'm going to go on. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He has blessed you in Christ with every spiritual blessing. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And these are only the ones that would be more familiar to us. See, for Paul, this phrase forms the very foundation, the framework, the fundamental sphere of everything he thinks and says and does. For Paul to live and breathe is to live and breathe in Christ. To experience love and loss is to experience love and loss in Christ. To know joy and pain is to know joy and pain in Christ. And for Paul, to suffer torture and imprisonment is to suffer torture and imprisonment in Christ. Everything for Paul was done in Christ. Because to operate in Christ was defined by his surrender to God. Paul surrendered his life to God. Listen to the language of surrender. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. For Christ's love compels us because we believe that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again from the dead. These are the words of Paul. This is the language of surrender. And what Paul teaches us is that a life in Christ is a life that is surrendered to God. A life in Christ is a life surrendered to God. Paul can write like this because he lived it out. In 2 Corinthians, he describes some of the things that he's gone through in his life. In chapter 11 and 12, he says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. He goes on to say, for the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions, and with calamities. Paul can write about surrender because he lived it. 
He surrendered his mind, his heart, and his will, his entire being to the purposes of God. Now, in our verses that we read in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, if you look particularly in verse 14, verse 14 touches on two things that I've mentioned so far. The first one is smell, and the second one is surrender. Smell and surrender. Verse 14 talks about fragrance in a very interesting way. It says, God spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere through us. God spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere through us. When I read this verse and I think about it, the image that comes to mind is this. It's Toucan Sam. Do you guys know who Toucan Sam is? Toucan Sam is the mascot for a cereal called Fruit Loops. And Toucan Sam, in these commercials that I would see as a kid, and I think they're still around, he has this giant toucan beak, right, which is like his nose. And then out of, and from somewhere, the smell of Kellogg's Fruit Loops comes wafting through the air. I keep saying Kellogg's. They're not paying me to say that, but I keep saying it. Kellogg's Fruit Loops comes wafting into, in the air and into Toucan Sam's nostrils. And he can do nothing but follow that aroma, that fragrance to the source of it. He has to find those Fruit Loops. When I read this verse, that's what I think of. I think about Toucan Sam. It's this beautiful metaphor of how the world ought to regard us as messengers of God's good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not, not, not the Kellogg's Fruit Loops metaphor, Paul's metaphor of the fragrance of the aroma. Incidentally, did you know that Kellogg's Fruit Loops only ha it has like eight colors but only one flavor? Do you know that? I feel duped by that. I don't know about you. Okay, anyway, back to this, our story. There's this beautiful metaphor of how the world regards us as messengers of God's good news, that we are to be this pleasing aroma to the world. Who doesn't love a pleasing aroma? My wife and I, our family, we moved recently to a location, um, an undisclosed location, close to uh, Scarborough Town Center, okay? Uh, and very close to Scarborough Town Center for many years and is still there today is a factory that bakes cookies. I heard it. Dad's cookies. So if, you, if you've ever driven by that corner of Brimley and Progress Road, you would in, invariably smell cookies. And every time I drive by, I slow down. I don't always, I rarely drive the speed limit, but when I'm there, I drive the speed limit to get as much of that cookie smell into my nostrils as I can. And um, once upon a time, there was also a Bix pickle factory across the street. How many of you guys like pickles? Probably not as much as you like cookies. Some of you do. I like both, and, but, but the combination was always really weird for me. <laughs> anyway, so there's this aroma. And that's what we are to be. We are to be this pleasing aroma to the world around us where people want to slow down and take it in. What's that about? What's that amazing smell? And so wherever you find yourself, we are to have that effect on those around us because of what? Because of the presence of Christ in us. If we are like Paul and we operate in Christ, then we will have the very aroma of Christ to those around us. Some things you may not know about smell. Smell is the most sensitive of our five senses. I don't know if you knew that. We can differentiate a trillion from between, a different, uh, between one trillion different stimuli. One trillion different stimuli. We can tell the difference between smells. It's extremely, extremely sensitive. 
And smell is immediate, the recognition that comes from smell is immediate. You know, when you, when you see someone, when you use your sight, you see someone in the distance and you can't quite make them out, you really don't know, you don't recognize them right away, right? Then you need to get closer. And same with hearing. Sometimes you hear a, a sound and you, you, a, you don't know where it's coming from, you don't know exactly what it is, right? And with touch, have you ever seen like on YouTube when they have these boxes and you, you put your hand in it and then you have to feel around to, to see what it is? It's usually celebrities that do this, no? Am I the only one who watches dumb stuff on YouTube? Yeah, okay, sounds like it. But with touch, you don't know because you kind of have to guess, right? It's, it's furry, is it slimy, what is it? But with smell, the recognition is immediate. You know what that smell is. And it is, not only that, it's connected to our brain in a very different way from the rest of our senses. It's the only part of our nerve, central nervous system that is connected directly to the brain, right? Everything else has to kind of bypass other parts of the body, but with smell, it goes right to our brain. And not only that, it connects with our emotions. It connects with our memories. It connects with, even with our decision-making. And smell sometimes creates a longing in us that we can't even explain. So we apply some of these characteristics to how people ought to interact with the fragrance of the knowledge of God through us. And what that tells me is that people are sensitive to spiritual things. People are sensitive to the spiritual realm. Their radars are on. And not only that, that when they see it, when they smell it, they recognize it. They know it when they see it. And so when you live out the, your faith, people around you are watching and they know. They may not name it as that, but they see that there's something different about you. And not only that, people respond emotionally. They respond viscerally to that. Now this is heavy, right? There's a lot there. So thank goodness Paul says, who is sufficient for these things? Because he knows it's a big job. But that's what it is to follow God. That's a big part of following him, is for each of us to be God's fragrance of the knowledge of him. For us to be the fragrance of the knowledge of him. So there's two parts of this, right? What is it to be the fragrance, and what, is it to be the, uh, what does it mean to, to, to have the knowledge of him? So the fragrance that Paul refers to in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 uh, almost certainly refers to Old Testament sacrifice. So once upon a time, to cover sin, God um, would ask the, the Israelites to make sacrifices, you know, grain sacrifices, um, uh, wave sacrifices, animal sacrifices. And they would bring it to the altar and they would burn it. And as they burned it, um, there was a pleasing aroma that would arise from it to God. And so the words for aroma and fragrance, these are synonyms for the, the sacrifice that is pleasing to God. Listen to it from the Old Testament. We see it in Genesis chapter 8, verse 21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. So this pleasing aroma to the Lord is, is, is the language of sacrifice. And we also see it in the New Testament in the book of Ephesians, chapter five. It says, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So Christ's act, his sacrifice, is this fragrant offering. And so when, when Paul talks about this aroma and this fragrance, he's talking the language of sacrifice especially as it pertains to the Old Testament. And so we are to be the fragrance of the knowledge of him. So what does it mean to have the knowledge of God? Now, 
I've read through the Bible a couple times. To know God is to know his son. If you want to get to know who God is, you're going to have to get to know his son, Jesus Christ. John wrote this in chapter 14 of his gospel. Christ himself speaking. If you had known me, he says, you have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So Christ says, because you have been with me and know me, you know my father and you have been with my father. If you've been with us for a while, you know we've been trying to preach through the gospel of John. It's taken a long time, but we're trying and we're getting through it. But you know that John wrote this gospel to put on display God, uh, Jesus' humanity. And in displaying Jesus' humanity, he wants to point you to Jesus' deity and God's deity. Using Jesus to point to God. Listen to this, probably one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. Talking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. If you want to know God, you got to get to know Jesus, and you need to learn how to represent him. J.I. Packer is a theologian who uh, wrote a book called Knowing God. And in it, he says this. He says, knowing God is an emotional relationship as well as an intellectual and volitional one and could not indeed be a deep relation between persons were it not so. The believer is and must be emotionally involved in the victories and vicissitudes of God's cause in the world. We know God at a relational level. God is a person, and so we can know him intimately and emotionally. And I don't know about you, but when you know someone intimately and emotionally, you begin to learn to love the things that they love and hate the things that they hate, to be concerned about the things that they are concerned about. And so to know God is to be concerned with his cause in the world. What is God's cause in the world then? It is the good news of the gospel. It is Jesus Christ, his son. And we are primarily declares of this good news by being good neighbors. We declare the good news of Jesus by being good neighbors. Now, neighbors are defined in different ways. It could be the person that lives next door. It could be the person you run into at the grocery store or sit beside at the coffee shop, someone you work with in the next cubicle. Wayne Gordon, who's a pastor of Lawndale Community Church in Chicago, he's been there since 1975, he wrote a book called Who Is My Neighbor? Lessons from a Man Left for Dead, which was based on the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, Wayne Gordon came to North Lawndale at a time when it was the 15th poorest neighborhood in the USA. 
And the motto of this church is simply loving God and loving people. And so for 40 years, over 40 years, this church has been making a concrete response to their neighbors in the Lawndale community. Whether it be a prison ministry, whether it be an after-school programs, building a community center, addiction support, Wayne Gordon and the Lawndale Community Church are making concrete actions that say, I am going to be a neighbor. I am going to declare the good news of Jesus Christ. I'm gonna read you a quote from his book. He asked himself this question, who is my neighbor? And this is what he came up, he came up with. He said, my neighbor is someone hurting, someone who needs help, who cannot help himself, who appears on my path, who has been robbed, who is half dead, who is naked, who is unable to ask for help, who is of a different race, who is a stranger, who has been stripped, who is a foreign traveler, who has been beaten up, who might require me to take a risk, who can't walk, who looks horrible, who is of a different religion, who is destitute, who is a victim of injustice, who has been passed by, who can't say thank you, who has been wounded, someone whom nobody wants to help, who is lonely, who will cost me some time, who is visible. This is a victim who has been violated, who is vulnerable, who is a, a human being, who feels humiliated, who feels helpless, who is poor, who is someone I'm afraid to help, who is dangerous to help, who is discouraged, who might cost me money, who needs tender, loving care, who feels defeated, and he was someone I am able to help. My neighbor is someone I am able to help. Being God's idea of a neighbor requires sacrifice. It requires stepping out and doing the thing that maybe doesn't even make sense to do. And everywhere you look in scripture, sacrifice requires and demands even surrender. Sacrifice demands surrender. And so this leads us to this tricky bit in our passage. The first part where it says God leads us or God always leads us in triumphal procession. God leads us in triumphal procession. Now, when, when Paul talks about this triumphal procession, he's almost certainly talking about a Roman conquering, a, a, a parade that the armies of Rome would go, um, would, would put on when they have conquered an enemy. And so this was as much pomp and circumstance that Rome could muster. These were huge deals. Everyone in the city would know that this is coming. The conquering general would ride on his horse, followed by his army, followed by his commanders and his captains. And they would ride through the city, and people would come, and they would laud them with praise and applause. It, there were 350 or so of these triumphs recorded in history and antiquity. And they're recorded on reliefs, they're recorded on um, coins, things like that. And so these are a really big deal. It would be as if the Leafs um, won the Stanley Cup. What would that be like? How would we celebrate? None of us remember a time when that happened. Or, when the, or maybe when the, the Jays won the, World, uh, won the World Series. Who remembers that? I was 14 when that happened. 
and I ran out on the street in my suburban neighborhood, and believe it or not, there were other people on the street just whooping and hollering it up. So this would be tantamount to that. This parade where everybody is brought out and everybody is celebrating. But not only is this conquering general there with his army, he's also leading with him the slaves, the captives, those who have been conquered. And this procession takes place running through the streets of Rome and ultimately would end up at a temple to the local god. Maybe it's Artemis. And at the front of this temple, these captives and these prisoners, if not all of them, at least some of them, would be summarily executed. They would be, um, they would be killed as a sacrifice to the gods to show the might and the power and the glory of Rome. So when Paul talks about this procession, this triumphal procession, that is what he's talking about. So this is an interesting metaphor, right? Because it leads us to think, okay, who are the players here? I think it's safe to say that God is the victorious general, right? I don't think we're, all, we're going to argue that fact. God is the victorious general. But then Paul talks about us. So who are, are the us? Is the us his army? his captain, his major domos that are sharing the victory with God? Or perhaps the us are the ones who are being led captive and bound to their death. Now, this thought is uncomfortable at best. Repulsive, if you think about it. It was repulsive to John Calvin. John Calvin, who is a theologian, reformer, pastor, he could not stomach this thought so much that he actually tried, he changed the meaning in his commentary. He changed the meaning of this word in the Greek to say that God causes us to triumph. If you read the King James Version, it still says this. King James Version says, God causes us to triumph. God causes us to triumph. And these are the words of Calvin. But the Greek can't be reasonably read in that way. The reason being is that the us in this sentence is the direct object of this verb to, to lead in triumphal procession. And whenever the Greek word for that and the direct object are put together, it is always to lead the direct object as a captive and as a slave when it's used with this verb. So the only way to read this is that Paul is saying that he is a captive to God being led to his death. I want you to take a moment to, set, to let that sink in. Take a moment to let that sink in. Listen to the Revised um, English Version or, or Bible. It says, it translates it this way, but thanks be to God who continually leads us as captives in Christ triumphal procession. I think, I think they get it right. But let that sink in for a moment for you. What does that look like to be led as a captive before God? Captive to his purposes, captive to his will, captive to do whatever he wants with you, including leading you to your death. 
There are two examples from my Bible reading this week that point to this. First one is from the book of Daniel, chapter three. Um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, these three young men, philosophers, thinkers who are advisors to the king, the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. And so they're advising him, but there are other advisors from Babylon, uh, Babylon, Persia at the time, and they're jealous of these three men. And so Nebuchadnezzar builds a 90-foot golden statue of himself, and they say, king, make everyone bow down to this and worship it. And if not, throw them in the furnace, throw them in the fiery furnace, cast them into their deaths. And so these enemies of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they know that they're not gonna bend the knee and they thought, now we've got them, we're gonna get rid of them. And so it happens, they refuse to worship this graven image of King Nebuchadnezzar. And so Nebuchadnezzar, by decree, he cannot go back on it, so he has to throw them in the fiery furnace. This is the response to him. O Nebuchadnezzar, they say, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. See, that's all well and good, because we know that they were delivered from his hand, right? But they didn't know that. Listen to what else they say. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden, golden image that you have set up. They don't know what's coming. All they know is that they have been taken captive by God, and they will go where he leads. Jesus says a very similar thing in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he's there, he's about to be taken into custody, and, um, and Peter cuts off the, the ear of the servant of the chief priest. And so he responds in this way. Jesus says to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. He says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus knows where he's headed. He knows to what end his earthly life will finish. But he goes willingly because he too is captive to God's purposes. So for Paul in particular, this is what is happening for Paul. As the enemy of God's people, God had conquered Paul at his conversion call on the road to Damascus and was now leading him as a slave of Christ to death in Christ in order that Paul might display or reveal the majesty, the power, and the glory of God, his conqueror. So that was Paul. Paul was the enemy of God. If you, you, know, if you know a bit about Paul's history, um, he he was the one who were, was imprisoning Christians before he had his conversion at, on the road to Damascus. He was imprisoning them. He was sending them to their deaths, their execution. He was literally the enemy of God's people. And so he can say this about himself, but what about us? Romans 5.10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. We were the enemies of God, not simply God's people. And so if Paul can say this about himself, or this can be said about Paul, this can be reasonably said about us, that God has conquered us at our conversions and is leading us to death in Christ in order that we might display his majesty, his power, and his glory. 
And so to be the fragrance of the knowledge of God in this world is to live a life of sacrifice and surrender. Those two things come together. So what does that look like for each of us? How does a, what does a surrendered life look like? It's a life that says yes to Jesus. Yes in every moment, in every thought, in every word, in every deed. I want to close with these final thoughts. Verse 15 to 16 in 2 Corinthians 2 says this, for, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. So what that says to me is, thank goodness that saving people is not up to us. It is not our work to save people. All God calls us to do is to be on mission with him, is to live a life that says yes to Jesus daily and to let the aroma of our yes do God's work, to bring life to those who would seek him and unfortunately, death to those who would reject him. That is what he has given us to do, to be the aroma, the fragrance of the knowledge of him. Verse 17, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So with sincere hearts commissioned by God, each and every one of us, the gospel we preach is like the fragrance and sweet-smelling sacrifice that spreads forth everywhere. We have a personal mission to be declarers of the good news. And through the aroma, then, of living and being in Christ, Christ's own sacrifice, this fragrant offering on the cross, becomes evident to others in us and through us. I'm going to finish with a prayer. Um, it's an old prayer, so some of the language is a little weird, a lot of thighs and thous, but I think it really is, um, befits the, um, what we've discussed today. So I'm going to ask you to close your eyes, and I, I want you to pray this prayer for yourself, all right? Not just with me, but pray this prayer for yourself. Let's pray. Sovereign God, thy cause, not my own, engages my heart. And I appeal to thee with greatest freedom to set up thy kingdom in every place where Satan reigns. Glorify thyself and I shall rejoice. For to bring honor to thy name is my sole desire. I adore thee that thou art God and long that others should know it and feel it and rejoice in it. Oh, that all men might love and praise thee, that thou mightiest have all glory from the intelligent world. Let sinners be brought to thee for thy dear name. And to the eye of reason, everything respecting the conversion of others is as dark as midnight. But thou, thou canst accomplish great things. The cause is thine, and it is to thy glory that men should be saved. Lord, use me as thou wilt. Do with me what thou wilt, but oh, promote thy cause. Let thy kingdom come. Let thy blessed interest be advanced in this world. Oh, do thou bring in great numbers to Jesus. Let me see that glorious day and give me to grasp for multitude of souls. Let me be willing to die to that end. And while I live, let me labor for thee. 
to the utmost of my strength, spending time profitably in this work, both in health and in weakness. It is thy cause and kingdom I long for, not my own. Oh, answer thou my request. Amen.